when you come to expect resiliency from individuals, it doesn't question the system enough, in my opinion, because it puts it on the individual to be resilient rather than calling for the system that forces that resiliency. Welcome back to another episode of Stories Between Us. We're the place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways so that one day a better story can be told. I'm Stu. And I'm Modi. And we're so glad to be joined by an absolutely incredible guest tonight. It is actually tonight. When you hear this, uh, it's going to probably be morning time, but it is tonight where we're recording. Uh, we're joined by my cousin, um, Taylor Stewart. Let me tell you a little bit about Taylor. Taylor is a boss, number one. Uh, but also, Taylor uh, is a MDiv graduate, uh, Master Divinity graduate of Harvard Divinity School. Woo, woo. Mm. Let's go. Oh, my goodness. And is a doctoral student right now in counseling psychology at Boston College Lynch School of Education and Human Development. She's also a researcher for the Institute for the Study and Promotion of Race and Culture. Taylor, what's up? I am doing well. I am doing well. How are y'all doing? Good, good. So good. So yes. Good. So, Taylor, um, I've heard it said that if we go back to our childhood, it can help us understand who we are today. Um, what are some of your defining moments that really help you do that? Defining moments from my childhood. I feel like my mother, she really, you know, instilled a sense of strong faith um, and pride in my blackness in me throughout throughout my whole upbringing and I feel like that is something that has really influenced who I am and how I deal with things in life and how I face mm. things in life like I was talking with my partner about this um, and my sister about how my mother she would actually color the characters of children's books she would color mm -hmm. them in mm. black and brown um, paintings that we had on our walls and stuff she would color them in to be brown and it wasn't until I was older that I recognized what she was doing mm -hmm. and so it was interesting because growing up we always would see in our books people who looked like us you know and I think that that's mm -hmm. really really powerful but I also think that also growing up you know I witnessed a lot of difficulties <laughs> you know a lot of suffering and um, I also know that's shaped me and the way yeah. that I relate to people, um, why I've gone into a lot of the work that I do uh, and things like that. So, but I definitely feel like having a strong sense of faith and a strong sense of identity is something that I really learned uh, from my upbringing. Mm, that's incredible. And yes, Unbeverly is actually, I, not, I, I actually get to talk, you know, about my family <laughs> in this podcast episode. Unbeverly is actually absolutely incredible, just an incredible encourager, you know, in some sense, like listeners, you may not know this, but well, you won't know this, of course, uh, but her mother is a doctor. And, you know, one of the things, you know, that one of the profound memories that I have, you know, particularly of Unbeverly, 
you know, it's just being not simply, you know, in training a healer, but your mother is really a healing presence in the world. Mm-hmm. Like she for is. real, for real. Mm, yeah. <laughs> she, she, she really is. <laughs> she really is. Like I, whenever anything was wrong, I was like, Call Aunt Beverly. <laughs> like, just actually, like, last year sometime, I was like, you know, I need to call your mom because I had a rash or something like that. <laughs> so I, call, I called your mom, and we, and we was on the phone for, like, an hour, yo. Just, I'm over here anxious as crap. Uh, <laughs> and and she's just like, Dante, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're okay. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm so interested, Taylor. You know, you, you go, you, we were raised in South Carolina, and... You know, you go to Harvard Divinity. Um, how, in some sense, you know, what was that experience like? Or even, you know, what was the defining moment that was like, yo, I really, you know, need to consider both Divinity School as well as, you know, uh, further my education beyond simply Divinity School? Like, like how, do you, how do you make sense of that defining moment professionally? Mm-hmm. So for me... When I went to college, you know, I I was a psychology major. I knew that I wanted to be a therapist. Um, I knew that going in. So I knew that once I finished, I would continue with schooling. Uh, But also when I was, you know, when I was in school, when I was in college, I continued to grow my own faith. I was very involved with, you know, our groups on campus and, Right before my senior year, I did an internship, and it was at an AIDS nonprofit, PALS in Columbia, Palmetto AIDS Life Support Services Incorporated. I did an internship there, and they had these support groups uh, for you know, women, men, but this was a men's support group. And the social workers in there began talking about faith, and these really strong black men mm. just started crying talking about you know their experiences both of hurt but also like refuge within their faith particularly given their AIDS diagnoses and there was something that just clicked in that moment I was already thinking about what am I going to do after after I graduate and I'd kind of been tugging back and forth with getting a MDiv as you know Dante we come from a lot of people who who preach or and who are in ministry so You know, and that that spiritual faith piece of me was really strong. And so I was already tugging with that. But when I saw those men become so vulnerable in a space that was both for mental health Mm -hmm. as well as spiritual counseling in that Mm -hmm. moment, that was when I decided that I was definitely going to go to divinity school. So honestly, for me, I feel like divinity school was kind of off the path of what I was originally thinking you know just going on to become a psychologist um wow but i felt like in order to really begin fully healing especially if i'm thinking about serving my community you know the black community Mm. and people of color a lot of it is mental but also we have like the spiritual Mm. pieces Mm. and there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain there and so for me going to Mm. divinity school was learning how to care for people's souls. Um, and I thought that that could aid me in mental health work. Mm. So that's how I got mm. to Harvard. 
Yeah. It was kind of out of the way from my tr- <laughs> initial <Yes. laughs> thoughts, uh, but that's how I got there. Yeah. Yes. So um, speaking of your time in Harvard, um, I'm going to kind of join two questions into one. Um, one, let's talk about your recent essay on institutions uh, dismantling white supremacy, uh, titled Dismantling Racism in Higher Education. Um that part and also about your experience as a black woman at Harvard being that you know it's predominantly white it's always been marketed to to that so um what about those two yeah okay such a good question um right <laughs> such a good question wow. i was yeah so in my in my research that I do um, for my doctoral studies, what I focus a lot of my research on is psychological interventions for black students and students of color attending predominantly white institutions. So predominantly white colleges and universities. Um, And that article, I was inspired to write that article, one, because of the huge response that colleges and universities had to police brutality, the killing of uh, George mm-hmm. Floyd, and all this amplified black voices and Blackout Tuesday, you know, all these universities and colleges who had before then, many of them been very quiet when it came mm-hmm. to issues of mm-hmm. uh, racism, particularly in regards to black That's people. Right. Um, wow. I was, I was like, wow, this is very interesting. It, it was great. I was happy to see letters, but I feel like a lot of those letters were met with very mixed responses from students and folk who work mm. there who have experienced mm. decades and centuries of racism mm-hmm. on these campuses. And so a lot of discussion after those articles, uh, not articles, those letters came out was centered around, okay, well, how can we really begin decolonizing our universities, decolonizing curriculum, uh, making sure that our syllabi are more inclusive of black scholars and black thinkers and black writers, making sure that you know we have more faculty of color and black faculty. And I think that that's all very important and that work has to be done. But I thought it was interesting that amidst that, many universities were also saying, okay, in black students, you can go to this one black individual <laughs> on mm, campus and talk right. to them. And sometimes that black individual was someone who was not trained <laughs> in how to yes. deal with racial trauma, wow. not trained in mental health care, not trained in white racial identity development and whiteness, not trained in really how to hold what these students are experiencing. Uh, oftentimes it's just a black person who's on faculty or just works you know, in the university that's charged to do this. and and they don't necessarily have the resources or the backing to do this work on their own. And so the article that I wrote was really about, okay, as you're doing that work, how can you also think about the well-being of your students? Because a lot of that work is looking at a syllabus, a classroom, and faculty. But that's not actually going to dismantle your racism. <laughs> you know, mm. that's, that's, all, that's all good and everything, but that's not going to actually dismantle the racism. I think that in order to dismantle, you have to actually get to the core of the system. And that's Mm. why one of the points that I mentioned in those three steps was the importance of establishing racial violence prevention offices on university Mm. campuses. We have Title IX offices that protect students against, you know, sex-based harassment, discrimination, violence. Mm. 
any kind of, you know, anything that's negative or can be hurtful. Uh, and there's nothing like that in place for racism. Mm. And so I think that when you think about how do institutions, educational institutions, show they actually value Black lives, I think a part of that is beginning to have a system in place to, one, hold people accountable <laughs> for their racist actions, mm -hmm. for racial violence, for racial rhetoric, for racial intimidation, mm. uh, mistreatment, and for there to actually be institutionalized consequences for racist attacks <laughs> against students and faculty and staff that are happening mm -hmm. on campus. Because I think that until, until there are reperc repercussions for racist behaviors, there's not gonna be mm. any change. And that's mm -hmm. something that I definitely ran into being at Harvard, but also being at every other institution I've been at, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I feel like a lot of times when racist incidents come up, the thing that people will say is, oh, well, that person has tenure, or oh, mm -hmm. I can't actually, we can't tell them what to do, or oh, why don't you do something? So when, when I was at Harvard, I was, you know, super involved with the community. Um, I was president of our black students group there and also of the student body, <laughs> you know, at one point. Mm. And so like, and a lot of the, a lot of the work was students doing programming to try to mm. lift our own voices. And there were times where we had to do demonstrations. We did die-ins because we felt like the university, the, the school didn't care for us. They didn't say anything, you know, when people were being murdered. <laughs> they just wanted class to go on as, as normal. Um, mm. There weren't, weren't as many black professors, you know, when I was there, we started a conference, the Black Religion, Spirituality, and Culture Conference, because there was no conference, you know, wow. that that really took into, <laughs> that really uplifted Black theological scholarship. Um, mm -hmm. I was having a conversation with an individual one time, and I was talking to her about hiring. It was a group of us. We were talking to her about hiring a more Black faculty, and she literally said, well, there just isn't, their scholarship's not good enough or there isn't anyone. And I forgot the exact mm. words, but it was so biting. Like it was literally as though mm. black academics were not good enough <laughs> mm. to be teaching here or there weren't enough. And it was that very conversation where we went from that point and said, well, we're gonna make a conference and we're gonna show you that, that, <laughs> that black academics are out here and doing mm. it. And that conference is now, I think it's four years old now you know, black scholars come and they talk, but racism is everywhere and it's definitely in the ivory tower. So, yeah. So it's, it's real, you know, especially when we're talking about, you know, racism and white supremacy, uh, especially in higher education and theolo particularly theological education. Um, you know, there's this theorist of race, Charles Mills. And one of the things, you know, he would say is that, you know, racial injustice in any society you know, deals with three things. It, it, the, the, the one who is oppressed and marginalized, they're seeing a second-class citizenship, uh, second-class citizens, they're exploited and they're continually disrespected. And as I was reading your piece, particularly, you know, when you were talking about uh, uh, both, you know, the legacy of white supremacy, but the ongoing, you know, nature of the, the sustaining of white supremacy in very profound and deep ways in curriculum and hiring practices and the whole nine. And if we're honest, you know, 
what I've done is I've leaned away from talking about racism in general to talking about white supremacy and anti-blackness in particular. Because, you know, people don't have a problem, you know, acknowledging that racism is out there, but oftentimes in their mind, you know, racism is, you know, public overt actions of, you know, bigotry individualized Mm -hmm. to to Mm -hmm. persons. And so, you know, the change that we need is like relationship change. But, you know, once we start talking about white supremacy and anti-blackness, it forces the conversation to not, you know, center white comfort and white progress, but to center violence and oppression and Mm -hmm. to whatever, to hold whatever change we are trying to institute make that accountable to black people, to those who are experiencing marginalization. Um, you know, and even as I think about my theological education, yo, I, I had to transfer. Like I transferred to Candler uh, School of Theology um, because the per- two previous schools that, you know, I was at, you know, they just were not serving black people, not simply in, you know, the structure of the system and the institution, but mm-hmm. also curricular. Uh, in the curriculum, you know, black people in very fundamental ways, you know, and even beyond black people, you know, others, you know, who would be people of color in a society, you know, we are second class in those education institutions. We are, our labor and our minds and our brilliance is exploited. And we're continually disrespected, told, uh, being told and even forced into the experience Mm. of being less than. And I think, you know, what you're working with in this, you know, essay, and even as you're, you, you, you characterize, you know, this component as both, you know, in some sense, the dismantling of white supremacy is a profound work of love and healing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, at least. Yeah. As I it, read your it, essay. It, it, it takes a different level of love. It yes. takes a different level of love. Yes, it I think does. especially when you've been on the receiving end of <laughs> racial oppression and racial violence. Yeah. It takes a different level of love to say, I'm going to engage in this work in dismantling your racist tendencies, yes. your white supremacist beliefs. Because yes. a lot of times individuals who are doing this work, you know, y'all, you know, mental health clinicians, professors, um, other people of color and black people, doing this work, we're also being traumatized by this work and just going into these spaces mm-hmm. and doing this work, it can be in and of itself traumatizing and triggering. Mm-hmm. And I like what you said about being very clear about what it is that is being called for right now um, mm-hmm. and being very clear about anti-Blackness because I think that a lot of people also, a lot of people, particularly white people, have a hard time saying black sometimes they want to say you know people Mm. of color or racism Mm. or um different cultures even though they're talking about race and if they're talking about race they don't want to say black you know Mm. they want to just say african-american but all Mm. black people aren't african-american you know so there's i think that we have to be very specific about what it is that we're calling for because it's very easy for folk to pretend not to see and white folk have been pretending not to see, even though it's right in front of them for generation after generation after mm. generation. Um, and it's definitely mm. very present within, within higher ed, not just within your curriculum, not just within your syllabi, your classroom practices, but also within your care, your mental health services, overwhelmingly mm. white, within your chaplaincy services, overwhelmingly white, 
you know, mm-hmm. and it's how how do you how do you thrive as a black person or any other person of color when you, you have mm-hmm. to face that before you even begin studying, before you even yeah. begin doing mm-hmm. your work. You know, I yeah. think one thing that you said, I recognize I didn't answer a racist experience that I've had in higher ed, one that completely changed me, honestly. And it wasn't at Harvard. It was at Wellesley. And I remember mm. I had a professor and I wrote a final and she gave me a, a C. And her comment on it was, this was too good for you to have written it. Mm. Wow. There was no plagiarism, no nothing. She oh said, this goodness. was too good for, for me to have written it. And I argued, wow. I fought back. I was like, what do you mean? It's too good for me to have written it. She's like, this is too good for you to have written it. She gave me a C and she was the chair of the department. Mm. you know Mm. and there's no Mm. it's like where do you go from there and that's just the nature Mm. of having black skin and being a student Mm. at a higher white predominantly white higher ed Mm. and that's the crazy you know the crazy part is you know those spaces would call themselves you know progressive in society (laughs) (laughs) inclusive uh, liberal liberal right exactly I mean, liberals <laughs> liberals yeah. can have some of the most <laughs> it's ridiculous i mean you can be liberal and still be racist okay just because you say yeah, you're no liberal question. does not mean that you are not racist and a lot of times That's the difference real. is that that overt racism becomes covert mm-hmm. you know mm. um and I won't even say that it's people say like, oh, implicit and unconscious bias. I think that that while that can be true, I think it's a slight cop out because once that implicit right. bias and that unconscious bias takes action, it's no right. longer implicit. It's explicit. unconscious. It's no longer exactly. unconscious. Mm. It's cautious. Yeah. Once that bias mm. turns into mm. behavior, mm-hmm. there's some con- there's there's conscious things happening. That's a choice to act that way. You may not be able to to control your thoughts <laughs> or your feelings, but you can control mm. your actions. So, mm. but yeah, it's terrible. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So um, earlier uh, you were talking about um, you and Stu both, actually, you guys answered that question so well, but um, with both of your stories in mind, how does one go about uh, resilience in this work? Right. How does one go about um, like building yourself back up, just like you said, Taylor, that you were, um, people even before they start the work have unfortunately experienced the oppression of it. So how does one continue in their resilience through the work and not get tired? Because I remember, um, as I was studying Martin Luther King, he would always talk about how tired he was all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. Especially in like his last three or four years of life he would speak about how tiring it all is. So how does one keep up um, the resilience and like mental strength and health in this time? Yeah, that's a good question. It's complex, you know, (laughs) it's very complex. And it's interesting because resilience is something that I feel like so many of us for generations we've had to be resilient in order to mm. even be here, mm. you know? Wow. Um, wow. But a lot of people, unfortunately, come to expect resiliency mm-hmm. from 
black people and exactly. people who are experiencing mm. racism. Um, and a lot of times yes. within certain systems, people of power, and that can be from, you know, a professor to a boss to, you know, mm. a writer to a therapist. When you come to expect resiliency from individuals, it doesn't question the system enough, in my opinion, because it puts mm. it on the individual to be resilient rather than calling for the system that forces mm. that resiliency to be changed. Mm. Um, wow. But I think that in order to not just be resilient, but in order to thrive, you know, in the yes. face wow. of oppression and in the face of injustices, it, it, takes, it takes a lot of support. It takes a lot of community. It takes a lot mm. of positive coping strategies. You know, that could be writing, prayer, journaling, listening to music, spoken word, whatever mm. your outlets mm. are. Mm. It takes a lot of pouring into yourself not just on your own, but having others who pour into you, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that's been something that has almost stood the test of time um, mm. when, where we have, when we have community, you know, when we have people who believe in us and who encourage us and support us and people who we can talk to and we feel that we are being heard. You mm. know, that mm. I feel like is so essential um, mm -hmm. for for healing, um, for us to be mm. able to continue to to be able to thrive. Because when you talk about Dr. King and how tired he was, you know, I feel like that is something that so many civil rights leaders experienced. So yes. many leaders today, and you know, yes. civil rights and protesters and anyone that's been engaged in this work, period, <laughs> in any form for a yep, long absolutely. period of time will experience because it is draining. It is spiritually, psychically, mm. emotionally, mm. and physically draining. Mm. And when, and when you don't have that support and you don't have a place where you can talk freely and just be and be poured back into, mm -hmm. you're going to burn out, yeah. you know, wow. you're going to burn out. And like, that can look different. Like you can find that in your faith. You can find that in your friends. You can find that in your family. Mm. A lot of people find mm. that in therapy. You know, you can find that mm. in yes. your relationships, your friendships, you know, yes. that, but as long as that support, that true genuine support is there, it's, it's extremely powerful. I feel like it's what sustained mm. us, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Kept it's, us true. On it. it's true. Yeah. Um, I, so I asked that question for, you know, that that specific reason and you gave such a good answer. I um I when I was active duty, I was certified in teaching um master resilience. So I was like a master resiliency trainer for the Air Force and I could do it as a civilian as well. I just don't right now. Um but it was such a big push at one point in the military trying to teach people resilience. I feel it is um, lacking in our normal community, right? Like there are no mm. resources to really learn resiliency in a class form like I was teaching while I was in the Air Force. And mm. there were so many people that needed it. And 
you just said in your answer, Taylor, that um, that you need uh, spiritual, physical, mental, social, all of that, right? And all of those were actually each each part of my resiliency course. There were eight. Oh wow! Eight, uh, yeah, there were eight categories, and it was mental, uh, spiritual, physical, communication, um, sleep, mindfulness, and something else I, I it slips mm-hmm. me but something else yeah and um each one of those things are definitely something something that that everybody needs but I think it's really lacking especially for um in for people who have been oppressed there is no resource to learn resilience as a young person or you know as you get older you just just like you said mm. they, it's kind of expected to, to be resilient. And it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it's, yeah. I don't it's know right. why it's not in the, in the education system. Yeah, no, I yeah. agree. So funny. Um, one of my friends, actually a friend from uh, the divinity school, we were having a conversation last week and we were talking about this like vicious cycle that mm. we feel has been perpetuated within the black community of, you know, we're already dealing with so much just being black in America, but there's also this stigma against mental health. And there's also this like pressure to just be strong and keep going. Yes. (laughs) You know, keep going. Why are you crying? Keep going. And it's interesting because I feel like as a group and as a people, we've become so used to being mistreated and we've normalized mm-hmm. pain mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. that yes. that even when now we are getting more access to it it's still stigmatized as yes. oh that's you don't need that just yes. keep going stay strong yes. like why are you wasting your money you know so when you think mm-hmm. about resources it's very it's a lot of times we don't have the resources that we need be yeah. that because they mm-hmm. just aren't there or there's a stigma against accessing them. Mm. And wow. wow. I think thankfully within our generation, um, I feel like there's a, sh- a shift kind of happening. You see more yes. people accessing therapy, mm. talking about rest, talking about self-care, talking mm-hmm. about mm. these things that are so essential just for us mm. to live and to live well, not just merely, mm. you know, make it live mm. well. Yes. Wow. You know? Yeah, wow. I wow. This is so so good actually. Like <laughs> I'm just over here just soaking this in. Yes. And and it's really, you know, it's really bringing to mind, you know, the you know, the saying of Jesus where Jesus says, you know, come to me, you know, all who are weary and heavy burdened, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Yeah. And I think about, you know, as we as we're speaking about resilience and forced resilience. You know, I'm reminded of this, of, of the, the, the saying of Jesus, you know, where Jesus says, you know, come to me, you know, all who are weary and heavy laden and heavy burden, mm. and, you know, I will give you rest. And when I think about, you know, Black people, you know, in our society, uh, and particularly, you know, this idea of rest uh, you know, as I, I try and read theologically, read Jesus in the sense of saying, you know, that black bodies can find rest, mm-hmm. that that should be a legitimate 
you know, uh, 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 kind of, you know, journey. It should be a legitimate journey that bodies that are broken within a society, bodies that are forced into resilience, bodies that are uh, uh, mutilated and mm. have to deal with brutality, bodies that are forgotten can find rest. And I was reading this absolutely incredible essay uh, by a Harvard professor, Elizabeth Alexander. I think she's still at Harvard, maybe. Um, it's entitled, you know, the Trayvon Generation. And you know, as we was thinking about, you know, healing in this moment, she writes that she calls, you know, our generation, the Trayvon Martin generation that, you know, and this is quoting her. She says, they always knew the stories. Uh, these stories formed their worldview. Their story, these stories helped instruct young African-American African-Americans about their embodiment and their vulnerability. The stories were primers in both fear and futility. The stories were the ground soil of their rage. These stories instructed them that anti-Black hatred and violence were never very far. But then, especially as she makes this shift, and especially as you're talking about, you know, Taylor, you're talking about community, she makes this shift of, she goes through a journey of saying, you know, she's teaching us that she worries deeply about our struggles with depression and our mental health mm -hmm. as we have been forced. We know like Philando Castile uh, and, and the image of a black body. Maya, our previous guest was talking about, you know, she will never, ever watch a black person die she 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 wondered what does it do these images of yes constant trauma what is it doing to us emotionally and professor alexander worries about that as well but she says something i think is incredibly relevant and i want to ask a question you know to you based on this quote where she talks about you know black creativity emerges from long lines of innovative responses to death and violence that plague our communities. She says black celebration is a village practice mm. that has brought us together in protest and ecstasy around the globe and across time. Community is a mighty life force for self-care and survival, mm. but it does not protect against murder. Mm. Dance itself will not free us. We continue to struggle against hatred and violence. So I'm so interested, Taylor, you know, in some sense, you know, as we're thinking about resilience, as we're thinking, you know, about your studies, you know, how, you know, has both your theological studies and your psychological studies help you understand this moment of us being in a Trayvon generation, but also why it's just so critical to narrate black life from a position of joy rather than one of constant suffering or forced resilience, if that makes mm. sense. Mm -hmm. No, that makes complete sense. Um, first, I just want to say the verse, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That has been my mantra. So a scripture mm. I meditate on very, very often. Um, for the last five years, that mm. I, that became one of my mantras. Um, but I think that speaking of the fact that 
all of this violence, this murder is so accessible to us, whether or not we search for it <laughs> or not. You know, it's on our phones. Mm. It's on the news. Everybody's talking about it. Sometimes in our group chats, our text messages, we see people being violently murdered, shot to death, knees on necks, you know, mm. all of it. We, we see it um, as black people and as black young people. And that is constant trauma. That is constant mm. trauma. And I think, mm. you know, it's interesting because racial trauma is very, very real. I shared, I shared an article on my social media page, but also I shared it because there's a lot of scholarship done by black psychologists on this very thing mm -hmm. of racial wow. trauma, you know, yes. and, and that wow. racial trauma is real articles is, was written by my advisor and students, psychologists have come through my advisor in our program. Um, and it just, and they just talk about the physical and psychological symptoms that we experience when we're exposed to experiences of racism. Be that ones that we witness, you know, through someone else's experience, ones that we're told, intergenerational trauma, you know, mm -hmm. ones that we mm. live, ones that we see, mm. you know, mm. that literally results wow. in increased rates of depression, <laughs> increased rates of mm. anxiety, hypervigilance, um, difficulty remembering things, confusion, blame, uh, we have more issues with cardiovascular, you know, health concerns. And some of that is due to the fact that our nervous systems are constantly aroused because we live in a hypervigilant state, knowing that our lives could be threatened at any moment without consequence a lot of the time. Um, and there is no way for that not to impact somebody. That would impact anybody negatively, mentally, and spiritually. Um, so when you're talking about Maya and how she was saying, I don't even watch it. Mm. I can understand. I can understand that it's hard to watch. It's hard mm. to watch. Traumatic. Um, it's traumatic. It is traumatic. Hella it traumatic. It yes. rips. I don't know how y'all respond, but it's like ripping your heart. Yes. You know, it's, mm. you know, I know for me, it's like dissociation, sadness, yes. tears, despair, mm. yeah. you know, grieving and yeah. recognizing that that could be me. Mm -hmm. That could be, you know, you, Dante, that could be anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see people who are just walking down streets with a bag of Skittles and some iced tea, when you see people who mm. are just sleeping in their beds, wow. you know, you see people mm. jogging and running, mm -hmm. mm. people just leaving mm. a store and never mm. coming back, yes. you know. Mm. People just playing with toys in Walmart. You know, mm. it's mm. it's it's impossible not to be impacted by that. Mm. And we live with that mm. trauma. And it's cumulative. It's not isolated to mm. one incident. And it's passed down from generation to generation. Yes. Um, and we have to begin healing. Like, mm. we have to begin healing. Um, mm. And I feel like that's something that we are blessed to have the opportunity to do now where we are, you know, in time as black people. Um, but when the, and to what you said, I don't know the answer to the question fully, 
Um, oh, no, this is great. <laughs> but <laughs> um, to what you said about black suffering and black joy, mm. I I feel like yes, we do need to talk about black suffering, but we don't talk about black joy enough. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm. even in my decision to do counseling psychology instead of clinical psychology was very much so counseling psychology's emphasis on developing interventions and looking at things from a strength-based versus deficit-focused approach. And so a lot Mm -hmm. of the research that I do, because I do research on Black people, (laughs) you know, because that's (laughs) my population, a lot of that is in complete resistance to the norm, the academic norm and the societal norm, which looks at Black people in either a way that it's deficit-based, criminalizing, or Mm. looking at for being some kind of, looking at our people as being some kind of inferior or something is wrong with us. You know, mm-hmm. the research that I do that, you know, my predecessors have done and I feel like so many black scholars are doing is beginning to center our voices and to look at the wholeness of our experience and to look at the strengths and the joy mm-hmm. and to bring that out because I feel like we are constantly bombarded with messages saying you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, all you, like, jail is waiting for you the grave is waiting for you you know mm-hmm. how can you live how can you live mm-hmm. and how can you how can you expect to live different mm-hmm. and how can we expect others to treat us different if that's what they're being taught right. about wow. us and that's what right. they're being shown on television and you know it's we have to fight back against that and for and it looks different for all of us and you know part of my fight you know, and other people's fights who are currently either, you know, doing research or in the academy is doing the research to show a more complete picture, Mm. you know, pushing back Mm. and protesting and resisting through our scholarship and Mm. through showing white people, because sometimes the only thing they trust are studies and percentages and numbers Mm -hmm. that the way y'all have been telling this story has been wrong from jump. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. So it's deep. We have to center black joy because I think when we start seeing more black joy, we'll start to normalize it. Mm -hmm. You know? Wow. That's so good. Yeah. So going back to healing, um, earlier when we were talking, you were talking about um, a lotus and how you um, kind of identify yourself with the imagery of a lotus. And um, I... I know exactly what you mean. Janae, um, Janae Aiko, she is a singer, one of my favorite artists of all time, probably. Um, and she has uh, her her latest album is called Chilombo. And on there, uh, it goes through her healing, her entire album, kind of each song kind of goes through like a phase of healing, especially as a woman. And there, uh, her intro song is titled Lotus. And mm. um, the mm. there's only one verse. Uh, it's very, very good. And the first line says that there was a woman born from a lotus 
um, her second line says, her heart was golden, deep as the ocean. And then this one man, he came and broke it till it was open, just like a lotus. And then she says, oh, yes, there were explosions. She found her focus, the beast awoken. Mm. Mm. And, um, you know, I really feel like her her album, and then she has another song on there called "Speak," and um, I'm I that song that song is a normal length, so I'm not going to read you those lyrics. But in the uh, in the chorus, she has um, she says, "Speak from your heart, baby. Speak from your sh- your soul. Say what you want and act like you know who you are." And um, mm. yes, it's such a good song. Oh my gosh whole album fire but anyway um yeah (laughs) um and a lotus the it grows from mud the roots of a lotus are attached to mud but when it blooms it blooms into something that is unmatched in beauty so how do you see that imagery playing out in your own story of healing and also like healing as a society like how would how would this generation be able to really like move forward and how can they find hope in their own healing yeah that's such a it's a deep question i think personally for me i identify with the lotus just because of like many people everything that we've been through <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. everything that I've been through in yes. my life, you know, a lot of pain, you know, I mm. had trauma like other people, a lot of hurt, yes. um, mm. you know, I've witnessed firsthand what it's like to de- to have to deal with incarceration. I haven't been incarcerated, mm. but, you know, my loved ones mm-hmm. and having to try to take care of myself and my loved ones being hurt, being abused. And I think, mm. I think that a lot of times that for me for a long time that resulted in me not even knowing I wasn't even present you know I was had a mm-hmm. smile on my face but you yeah. deal with personal stuff and you deal with things about people treating you different because just because of the color of your skin and you deal with so many things that I, I was just floating through the world didn't even recognize I wasn't fully present and I think that mm-hmm. I identify with the with the lotus flower because I feel like now I'm blooming right mm-hmm. like now I'm I'm, I'm on my own healing journey, you know, I'm present, you know, I am prioritizing my healing. And for me, that looks like therapy. That looks like my spiritual practices. That looks like my community and my family and my self care and my partner. And, you know, um, but it comes with, it, it came with a shift though. You know, it didn't just, I feel like it didn't happen like overnight. It wasn't like a, snap oh now I'm going to go on this healing journey it was very intentional you know because I felt like I got to the point where I I could not operate in the way that I was operating anymore and I feel Mm -hmm. like now you know our generation and many others are recognizing we can no longer we cannot keep functioning in where we are Mm. like that is it's not good enough, you know, mm. like we're, a lot of wow. us are fighting and protesting for systemic level change, societal level change. And I think that as much as we fight for the systemic and the societal, we also have to fight for the personal and the familial mm. and the relational mm. because mm. 
that's where that's where healing begins. Yes. Wow. Um, yeah. And I think that that's I think that that's where it starts. I think it starts with us. It starts with with within our relationships and people we know. And as we all continue to heal, I think that we'll be able to also see changes at higher and higher levels. I think it looks different from person to person. I don't have the answer as to what it's healing for this generation look like, but I think that a lot of it looks like not being afraid to ask for help and not being afraid to seek mm. support. Because I think a lot of us have been taught that that's weak, you know? Yes. <laughs> mm. um, and I think that we mm. really have to begin asking for the help that we need. Mm. Period. Wow. I wish we could talk for another hour um, because this is just, oh my goodness, this is just so incredibly, good. incredibly good. Yes. And relevant. Um, oh my goodness. But Taylor, oh my goodness. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank y'all for having brother. me. Um, Thank you so much. As we really talk, you know, black joy and resilience and, dismantling white supremacy and love and you know the power of our stories i just want to thank you uh for authenticity and vulnerability yes. uh, because we believe that you know the power there's power in stories today but also you know that power lies in our willingness and courage to be both authentic honest vulnerable yes and hopeful in a space of dishonesty yes. and lack of integrity in our society. So just tell the people how they can keep up with you and your work uh, on social media. I definitely want to give you a space for that. So how can our listeners keep in touch with you and follow the work that you're doing? Of course. Um, so you can follow me on Instagram. That's the only social media that I really have at this time. So, and that is Taylor Talks Healing. Hmm. Yep. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's been another incredible episode of Stories Between Us. We were joined by my dear cousin, Taylor Stewart, who's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and a doctoral student right now in counseling psychology at Boston College Lynch School of Education and Human Development. She's also a researcher for the Institute for the Study and the Promotion of Race and Culture. It has been an incredible episode of Stories Between Us. You know, we are the place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways so that one day a better story may be told. I'm Stu. And I'm Modi. And we are out.